It's always really fun when a podcast takes a direction I wasn't expecting, and that's exactly what happens today. I brought on Becky Perros, who spent 30 years in the construction industry as a project manager, a keynote speaker, a resilience and leadership coach, and a professional mentor. And I brought her in to talk about cold, hard business. However, she was generous enough to share with us some of the really traumatic stories of her upbringing in her childhood and the way she has used her knowledge of personal development and coaching to actually overcome these and live a successful and happy life. This is a great listen, a great podcast. And if you want something deeper, I really hope you enjoy it. Here's Becky on Coaches to the Moon. This is Coaches to the Moon, the only podcast you need to skyrocket your coaching business and create true impact on the world. Here's your host, Alex Morris. Welcome back to the Coaches to the Moon podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am very blessed to be joined today by Becky Perose, who is an industry-leading project manager. She's got 30 years of experience in the construction industry, but she's also a qualified coach. She's a professional mentor, a highly regarded and requested keynote speaker, and she's here today to talk about resilience and leadership and adversity and just the coaching industry as a whole. Becky, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Alex. It's great to be talking to you. Thank you. Now, I admit I went on a bit of a deep dive this morning because, <laughs> uh, and it's going to be a very, very boring, boring question, but I found that most people on podcasts call you Becky Peroz, but that's not quite how you pronounce your last name, I'm assuming. As I said- uh, I'm okay with it being, it's very Aussie. You know, it's actually French in origin, Paro, if you Paro. really want to kind of, you know, get into it. Apparently, yeah. we were related to the royal family and, and ran away early, so we kept our heads. Um, Spewing. Yes. <laughs> forever known as a coward and, and apparently, you know, can never claim the legacy. So right. it's nice, uh, which is, yeah, it's sad because I quite like um, the science. Very pretty. I could probably make myself home there. Um However, yes, no, I'm an Aussie, a couple of generations now, um, and yeah, Perros is fine. So I get cool. all sorts of versions. I was I was trying to impress you and pronounce it properly, but I couldn't. You kept <laughs> giving the answer where it was like, I'm fine with Perros, which led me to think that's not the correct way, but I couldn't find you ever fully correcting someone. So uh, there we go. We'll go with just Becky, Becky P. That's fine. So um, I want to open up at the beginning. Right. So you've mentioned uh, your self-proclaimed seriously effed up childhood. And, oh, yes, yes. And you were kind of you were, you were diagnosed early on um, with arthritis, I, I believe. Yes. Rheumatoid arthritis. At rheumatoid 18. arthritis at, at 18. And that's something that, you know, we often attribute to kind of older people. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. not actually the case. I have a friend with rheumatoid arthritis as well. Beautiful young girl. And I know it's a bit of a tough one, creates a lot of adversity in your life. So my question for you is that, do you think that a tough early life actually put you on this path of success? And what is it about adversity that seems to create that drive in people? That's a really good question. and Probably one I've never been asked so specifically because the short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, easy to say, hard to explain. It's, it's one of those things that you either... I guess as a child, find it in you to believe that there's better. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was books, uh, avid reader, and it was an escape. So I was reading, I was kind of you know studying and learning, so I got left alone mostly. Um, and so reading early, and I was a very, very um, 
advanced reader. I was reading, you know, Sherlock Holmes, kind of Doyle, Charles Dickens by the age of eight and nine and ten. Um, so, you know, the, the great expectation story, you know, the orphan who, who discovers wealth kind of, you know, it's those sorts of stories that as a young girl gave me kind of hope. Because at that age you can't really distinguish between fiction and nonfiction. It's all kind of possible. Um, yeah. when, you, when, you, when you're that young, you know, you still believe in magic. Um, so what it did is it created this idea in me that there was better. At some point, there'd be a benefactor, could only hope. Um, and then as I grew up, I realised I could be my own benefactor. Uh, so the adversity allowed, I suppose, drove me to escape, which then gave me the possibility of change. Um, it also gave me, I suppose, that stubborn... Um, and this is not in everyone. I, I, I don't believe that everyone has quite the stubborn nature that perhaps I do. Um, but the refusal to give in, the refusal to let anyone uh, or anything beat me or win or be the reason for my, um, you know, non-performance or, or non-attendance in life. Mm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm glad you said that, that it kind of, it doesn't apply to everyone because we we know that, you know, through like movies and um, rappers and everything, we always see the Cinderella story of people coming from nothing. Mm. I mean, the fact is probably most people who come from nothing end up with nothing as well because they got a really, really tough go at the beginning. So it's interesting. And they've got to really, they've got to really search hard for those answers that they can't find in their own life. You've got to actually go on a, on a journey to find what is going to work for you to make that better happen. It doesn't just land in your lap you've got to really overcome all that societal parental and mental and psychological input that you've been subjected to that's a lot to overcome and you've got to really be driven to overcome it which is and I do understand why a lot of people either don't have access to that don't believe it can be for them or or just don't even have the possibility of it in their lives because they've been so subjected to the the trauma um, that they have. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I suppose looking at the internet and the coaching industry and all these shiny people on Instagram, these influencers, <laughs> it can make it seem very, very simple just to overcome and just oh, yes. get your head in the game. I mean, you I've had a super duper easy childhood, super, you know, just made it from the beginning, you know, luckiest mm. person in the world. And so for me, although I've had a, a struggle in business, I, that's only self-inflicted. I could have just gotten a job like I was recommended and had a really easy life, right? <laughs> yeah, so, get a real job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for the people who maybe, you know, did, did have some sort of a, a tougher upbringing like yourself, didn't quite feel like they fit in, maybe it was a chronic disease or, you know, family situation. Do you believe there was a bridging point that led you from where you were to kind of the beginnings of your successful journey? Hmm. Bridging point. Not really a bridging point so much as a decision point. Okay. Yeah, there wasn't an action or an external impetus. There was me with all of the history of um, my 18 years on the planet going into engineering, which gave me similar messages to my childhood. I don't belong. I'm not worthy. I'll never make it. Um, I'm not one of the crowd because, you know, back then there weren't many women at all and the boys were a lot more vocal about women in the industry back then than it could be. 
Uh, slammed with arthritis in a very chronic way. Like I went from being, you know, someone who would walk across town from my home to uni um, to someone who could barely hold a hairbrush to brush her hair um, or do up buttons or, you know, things like that within the space of a couple of weeks. So, oh, massive, wow, a couple massive, of weeks. Yeah, couple oh, of weeks. Massive change <laughs> very rapidly. Um, which at 18, I'd just moved out of home. I'd sort of finally escaped that environment and sort of had the possibility to be slammed with this. So I was in a very, very dark, dark place. Um, and it was kind of that decision point of, well, there's really no point in continuing. You know, that is, that's an option. That's a fact. All the messages I was getting from health groups and doctors, you know, give up your degree, give up your career, give up, give up, give up, give up, give up. Um, and that's where I talk about that stubbornness, kind of constantly being told that really got my back up maybe I was already angry let's face it maybe angrier um you know when they talk about rage I kind of you know learnt what that meant then in terms of the frustration you know no help no medication no understanding like who gets arthritis at 18 that's an old person's disease oh so overhearing that. um combine that with all the trauma of my childhood I kind of just internally imploded um and so the decision point was give up, check out, you know, take myself out of life because there's literally no point continuing or basically stick two fingers up to the rest of the world, go and live the life I want because it didn't matter how long it had, it was what I was going to do with it. Um, so, you know, I got messaging from my doctors. I'd be in a wheelchair by the time I was 24. I'd be dead from, you know, medication side effects by the time I was 40. Like, it was really dire at 18 when you just think you've escaped in some dire circumstance and be going, well, here's some more. Um, I'm trying really hard not to swear because, you know, there was a lot of... Go for it. ...vocal explanation of how I felt and curse words were really, you know, where it was at. Um, and I'm in construction, so I swear like a sailor anyway, normally. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just, it was this decision point. It's this massive internal imploding. You know, you can call it depression, you can call it trauma, you can call it PTSD, you can call it whatever you like. At the end of the day, it was, am I sticking around or am I out? And on that point, I kind of, with all the anger and frustration, I went, screw you guys, I'm staying. Um, and so from that moment on, it's been a journey. Uh, and that's, that's, what's my, that's when I started searching. That's when I started trying everything out there. Um, you know, my doctor, I suppose, was blunt enough to say that if I tried any alternative therapies, that was on me and no doctor would ever recommend it to me because if it worked, well, they'd lose a whole lot of money treating yeah. me. Yeah, and I kind of really appreciate for all of for all of you know I was going to be in a wheelchair and going to die and all the rest of it. That one piece of advice was really valuable to me, to kick me off and go and figure it out for myself. So I'm a qualified aromatherapist. I've done you name it. I've tried it. All the woo packages out there, I've had a crack at, and probably a few that you know most people haven't heard of. Um, which you know roll forward about 10 years came around to coaching way way before it was a buzzword and a popular thing um and kind of when it started talking about managing your mindset I went maybe that could help and so I did my coaching course with the likes of Jack DeLosa and Benjamin uh, Harvey um Dal Beaumont they were all in the same courses as me you know 20 odd years ago so 
it's interesting to watch the rise of those coaches versus what I did because mine was very much about my own personal development. And, of course, doing it, I realised there's a whole lot of benefit, particularly in my industry, in talking to the men. And I was already a leader and a manager by then. So it really helped give me a lot more skill to accelerate that um, leadership growth in my own career because I could have better conversations. You know, I could understand that what I was trying to say to them, I needed to put in their language rather than insist they understand mine, which is, you know, the fault that is bred into, I think, engineers and project managers somewhat with our jargon. We forget that the dude on the shovel digging the hole who without him nothing happens doesn't necessarily understand when I use, you know, big jargonistic type technical words. He just wants to know how deep the hole is kind of okay. thing. Okay. Can I stop you but, there? Yeah. Because that's yeah. a super interesting point that I think a lot of coaches make a, make a big mistake by assuming way too much knowledge from the people they're coaching, right? Mm-hmm. And so we'll go in. You've been a coach for, you know. 20, 20 plus years, yeah. 20 plus years. <laughs> I want to get into your journey. But pretty much you said that you – you started your life coaching qualification before Susan on Neighbours did, you know, a long time ago. Yes, yeah. I did. A and long, then when that happened, ago. I went, oh, my God, no, that she just killed it. the whole thing. Oh, my God, you're the first person who's actually made that connection. But it's so true. I heard because I don't watch Neighbours, but I heard about it and just went, oh, no, I can never use the word life coach again. That's fair <laughs> enough. So a lot of these life coaches, coaches in general, let's, let's use yeah. fitness coaches, for example, right, or mindset or whatever it is. We go in and we kind of assume too much knowledge from our clients and our audience. And we'll go in because we're qualified, we'll use the jargon, we'll use the buzzwords, we'll tell people to just align with themselves and center with their own freaking... Um, oh, bring out the- your own integrity and be authentic. Yeah. And yeah. So, yes, um, my passion around that is from the own messaging I got when I went through all of this stuff. Because the messaging out there starts with... Just believe in yourself. Mm. Now, when you come from a childhood where you were told you weren't worthy of being alive, that your only reason for being was to provide service to whomever, um, then go into a career that kind of gives you similar messages, you don't really know what belief in yourself looks like. And so a lot of my research was, okay, and I'm an engineer, I'm process-driven. Tell me how. What is point one of believing in yourself? What's the first step? And, you know, there's nothing out there that actually addresses the before you get to believe in yourself, which is where my passion comes in and why I suppose I really get people don't necessarily understand what that means. Like if you've never been shown, if no one's ever believed in you, you have no idea what that looks like. It is just a bunch of hoity, bunch of words that sound motivational that, you know, go on an Insta post. It has no relevance, no resonance, no meaning, and it doesn't automatically just, oh, well, that's it. Shit, how did I not know that? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Straight from Um, an Instagram quote. Didn't change your life immediately? No, I know. Oh, my goodness. You think it (laughs) Um, would? So that's the, yeah, so that's a part of the book that I wrote was trying to really, you know, dive into what a self-belief look like because if you can't understand that, then no amount of coaching is going to get you anywhere if you don't get that point. Hundred mm, percent. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's go down that road a little bit then. Okay. 
very easy to believe in yourself when you've got a roof over your head and a paycheck, even if it's a small one, or you've got at least one person in the world who maybe loves you or you can tell your problems to. If you do not have these things, if you're truly in what society would call a shitty situation, Beck, how do you start believing in yourself? Yeah. First, you have to be willing to believe that it's possible to. Mm. And that's an interesting one because generally speaking, when you don't know what that means and you can't, so you can't see, you can't be what you can't see. So if you can't see someone believing in you, how do you believe that you could believe in you? So you've got to allow for the possibility, which is a beautiful phrase that I love um, because that's what it's all about, coaching, isn't it? allowing for possibility. Yeah, absolutely. I'll let you have your sip of water and allowing for the possible, just opening your mind to being coachable, you know, and to letting to change come possible. in, taking your guard yeah, down a so, bit. So allow that it's possible that at some point you'll believe in yourself. So once that has kind of, you've got that concept, what will generally happen, and we know this is coaches as a phenomena, you'll start to actually see that maybe there are people out there who do believe in you. You know, maybe that boss who only pays your pittance but gives you extra responsibility because they see your potential. They believe in you. It's not a macro belief. It's a very micro belief in terms of you can do this job and I can trust you with the money. But it's a, it's a, it's an example of belief in yourself. So looking for those external validations that it's possible and could be true and then starting to apply that same process to yourself and your own internal thoughts. Because your own internal thoughts are your worst enemy. And when you've been told these things repetitively for 15, 18, 20, however many years, it's very hard to stop that language because the language just keeps going. It doesn't, the person could have died 20 years ago and you only heard it for the first year of your life. It's still playing. So having, a, I suppose, that self-conversation of when those thoughts start, kind of going, whoa, hang on a minute. I've got Joe over here who trusts me with his money. So he believes in me. I've got Susan over here who lets me pick up her kids and lets me have her kids in the car. So she trusts me to drive safely with her children. Um, I myself, you know, have come through X, Y, Z and I'm still here and I'm still willing to allow for possibilities. Maybe, maybe that's something I could believe in. Maybe that's something I can hold on to. And that's where the difficulty gets with people particularly from sort of, I guess, more traumatic um, and dysfunctional backgrounds versus people who haven't necessarily grown up with that is that lack of understanding of exactly how ingrained that messaging is and trying to coach anyone without sort of breaking down those messages and those patterns is honestly it's futile. And this is where people can get caught in pain for years and years and years of therapy or coaching or whatever modality of, of help they're seeking because the group cause is not addressed, which is the voice inside your own head on repeat that you're not good enough. Um, and so catching that internal voice and kind of not having an argument with it, but having a, a discussion and kind of going, well, here's some evidence to the contrary. And again, that's where that allowing for possibility has to be the first step so that you can then, then allow yourself to go, well, hang on. So for me, it was I've overcome X, Y, Z in my childhood. Um, you know, I've lived through this, this and this in my childhood. And, you know, I'm talking like my father had guns. He waved around when he was drunk, kind of level of violence and danger. Um, you know, lack of medical 
uh, attention in, you know, critical moments. Um, you know, my friends, when they hear some of the stories, are like, how the F are you still alive? I'm like, oh, I'm too stubborn to die. Um, <laughs> I'm willing to give in. So, you know, so, like, there's a couple of things there when I kind of started looking and it, it did take someone external to kind of say to me, look at what you've been through and how can you not believe in yourself? And I kind of went, huh? What? And that that reframe really kind of, well, hang on, what have, okay, I've been through that. Okay, I've been through that. Okay, I've been through that. You know, even take out the trauma and the childhood, I've been through an engineering degree where it wasn't common. I got myself a job at 16 and put myself through high school because my parents had no money and stuff. I wanted to learn. I had to pay for it myself. Um, you know, I know the hell out of the architects in the local town I was to give me, you know, six weeks work experience and pay me as a girl back in, you know, late 80s, 90s. Like this, when you say that out loud, people kind of go, how, the, mm. how did you do that? For me, it, was, well, it wasn't a choice. I needed it. Yeah. But when you allow for the possibility of believing yourself and you suddenly look at these things that you've done through those eyes, all of a sudden you're like, holy crap I'm all right I did okay I have more power I have more ability than I have ever given myself credit for bingo all of a sudden that's what self-belief starts to starts to take form and starts to take shape and gives you that launching pad to go okay what else can I believe in who else believes in me what else am I what else is possible for me to achieve that I can then load onto that self-belief there's the answer there we go so (laughs) Uh, yeah, no one else needs to coach ever again. Just listen to that. You're done. In there, in, <laughs> what I find super interesting about your journey to self-belief, coming through so much shit on the way there, is that you have to be very, very resilient to come through all the stuff you've been through. Yep. However, some might, well, your resilience has helped to form your self-belief. However, some might say, that without believing in yourself, why would you bounce back from all the shit you've been through? <laughs> so do you think that your resilience, you know, your natural resilience to overcome adversity and just keep your head down and move forward, that created this strong self-belief? Or do you think there was always a little bit there that allowed you to pick yourself up every time your dad got drunk and waved a gun at you? No, I don't think it was resilience back then. I think it was stubbornness. I think it was that refusal that, excuse me, you know, when I put it this way, and this might be a little bit traumatic for some people, when you get hit, you have physical pain. So you have something of a physical element to rage against, to fight against, to hold in your memory, to be resistant to. So... In some ways that, and it sounds terrible, but that's actually easier to overcome than psychological damage because you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't understand it necessarily because these messages have started so early. These are thoughts that you have grown up with. So the possibility of them being different is much harder. I think, and this is purely my journey, as I said, this could be very triggering for some people, having the physical pain actually gave me something to rage against, something to hate, something to hold on to and say, oh, you will never, like you might hurt me, but you will never beat me. Um, and so people might call that resilience, but it wasn't, I, I don't, 
maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I, I just refer to it as a stubbornness. I just refusal to bend, refusal to break, sorry, not bend, break. Um, a refusal to turn into what he was trying to turn into, which is that, you know, I'm not going to give in. You will not break me. You will not mould me into this creature that you want. I am never, ever going to do that. It was just pure stubbornness, just contrariness, all the things that I've been accused of as an adult um, in negative ways by bosses uh, are probably the things that got me through my, that childhood in terms of, like, nah, you're not going to win. Thank you for sharing tough things, by the way. Do you, do you think that there was a point when you stopped being motivated by stubbornness and negativity and started realising that, you know, you can make something positive out of it? Yes, there was, but that was a very hard change of mindset. Um, and, again, coaches, we know um, what used to be success and safety turns into a sabotage. And so I was around that point of that pivot where the stubbornness and the assertiveness, aggression, the rage, the power, the force I was channeling through my life journey became more of a sabotage. So instead of, like, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, so I can I understand the transmutation of energy without being all work. You know, energy is just energy. Whether it's rage or whether it's a passion, it's still an energy that can be used. So... My rage is what channeled me, fueled me to keep going. And, you know, no matter how much pain I was in, I was getting up and going to work that day because I had this energetic force I could transmute into the ability to move. Um, that's not a healthy way to live uh, long term. You know, the, the, eventually the rage starts to overpower, it starts to come out. You start to react very poorly in circumstances that don't require it. You know, someone says hello and you go, F off. Um, you know, at that point, you kind of go, hmm, this isn't serving me very well anymore. And so I really had to, and that did actually coincide with something sort of coming, I was moving into the coaching. I hadn't yet discovered coaching as it was back then, but I was moving into that kind of mindset, um, thoughts create your beliefs, create your actions kind of space. And so I was beginning to realise that this rage was escaping me. Um. And that it was affecting other people. And that's, you know, that doesn't make a person a pleasant to be around. So I was really challenged to look at <clears throat> the energy I'm using and ask myself if there's better ways. And, yes, better ways was actually how do I be happy without using rage to get me to a point where I'm happy? And that sounds really convoluted, but anyone who's been through what I've been through will understand. Um, how do I just get to happy? How do I just wake up and without all the self-talk and the pep talk and the yes, you believe in yourself and all the stuff that I used to have to do to just get on with my day, how do I just wake up and go, hey, I'm smiling, I'm just happy? Um, so that was sort of the changing point when I started asking those questions. How it happened and the practice of that took a fair bit longer. Because, you know, habits die hard and especially success habits. Success habits are really some of the strongest things to change in your terms of your mindset, your neurology, and your patterning because um, they've kept you safe and they've kept you successful till then. So, yeah, it's – but, then, yeah, there was that point that I kind of went, mm, this, isn't, this isn't working so well anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I mean, the chip on the shoulder often is the thing that fuels so many people to get out there and smash it. However, 
also the thing that can bring them down and self-sabotage that sort of thing uh later later on in life I, i talk a lot about on this podcast about how like my own my own chip on my shoulder was kind of trying to live up to my dad's success what i thought was really successful as a dad you know you know lots of holidays we could go on um i thought you know he was around every sunday that sort of thing to Mm -hmm. hang out with us nice house whatever we wanted and so my own ship was always like move faster to live up to dad that sort of thing however whenever i found myself not living up to dad that's when i you know, just jump down to that little pit of guilt and, you know, blaming myself and thinking I was a piece of shit once again. And when mm. I realized that, just like when you realize your own fuel, um, I was able to slowly, slowly change it and be my own dude, which is a tough one. I'm really, really glad that you you moved into a more positive space. And I'd like to talk about, you know, your perceptions of how we can make some positive change in this world now, because we've both talked about before the podcast and a little bit on the show, how the coaching industry is a pretty messed up place because anyone can call themselves a coach. You've got a qualification. I don't have a qualification, but we do both still coach people in various (laughs) ways and forms. Um, What do you think needs to be shaken up about? uh, Sorry. What do you think needs to be shaken up about the coaching industry? As much as I hate to say it, I do believe some form of qualification uh, and I don't necessarily mean like three years of university, but I do perhaps a regulating body. You know, if you're a natural coach and you have those natural skills, and that's very possible, then that's great. But I do believe this should be, I guess, a, an ethics body that we can sign up to, that can kind of vet us, that can be a place where people who have not been treated well can come to and that, and that, that person can be investigated, often training, realigned to a more um, customer service and outcome-focused basis for the client because what I, sadly, what I find and what I've seen grow over the last 20 years is it's much more about how much money can I make from you than how much can I help you improve your life. Mm. You know, we all, as coaches, we all generally go through a values exercise. Um, And I find with the rise of coaching at the moment, the, the big value motivator behind many, not all, but many, is money. You know, I can make $5,000 a, a pop with client. Well, I could too, but I don't actually want to charge that much because I want to reach the people who can't afford that much because they need my help more. Someone who can afford $5,000 is probably doing all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll take their money and I'll coach them just as equally well as, as the others, but they're not my clients. Um, and there are people out there who will, that was the, like NLP is a very, very useful tool. It's also a very dangerous tool because NLP is about the language you use for yourself. And if you're adept at using NLP to talk to people, it's a very good sales tactic. And some of the coaching courses out there actually go through how to use NLP in sales. And that's okay if you use it with ethics. If you don't have any ethics, if you don't have any boundaries, if you don't have any concern about the person you're using this on, um, you know, I've heard stories of people going and getting their house mortgage to pay for a coaching course. And I vehemently object to that as a premise, as a thing, 
And this coach was okay with that because, well, if you do what I say, there's a red flag. Uh, and if you put the hard work in, there's another red flag. You should make that money back and more. Third red flag. Because what that coach has done is put it all on this person who's come to them seeking a way of improving themselves and said, well, if you don't achieve this, it's your fault. And that is probably the core of my issue with most of the coaching is we've turned it into a blame culture. What are you not taking responsibility for is one of the most divisive and dangerous questions to ask someone. Because when you're asking someone who comes from a traumatic background, someone who's been beaten every time they didn't do something in their home and been made to feel responsible for everything, that question is is almost deadly um, because it triggers all those things. And I have seen coaches throw that out blithely in order to get someone to pay for their coaching package. You know, well, if you don't want to do this, you're not taking responsibility for yourself. How are you ever going to possibly change? If you don't sign up right now and take responsibility for your life, then what you're going to be the same a year from now. That is morally gray, ethically dubious, and just customer service for mm. because you're making it all about you and your bottom dollar, not about what this person needs. And as coaches, I really firmly believe if you're coaching, it is about the other person first and your fulfillment in whatever way second. Couldn't agree um, more. Couldn't agree more. And I'm I was laughing as you were saying that because I was having flashbacks of my own early years in coaching where I got really good at making my prospects emotional on a sales call. And I was so good at closing deals and putting the hammer down and getting people to the point where, oh yeah, I'll do anything. And then lo and behold, Becky, two days later, you get the freak out text, can't pay for this program. It's like, mm. of course you can't. I kind of almost forced you into it because I was so good at selling you at the time. However, were, yeah, using NLP to, yeah. in the moment, change their mindset. To 100%. Yeah. 100%. I, I've got a, um, there's a guy down here in Sydney called Luke, Luke Hawkins, who is a uh, an NLP trainer, practitioner, and he kind of certifies people in NLP mastery, that sort of thing. Great guy. And I went to his courses and I went to NLP for my own shit. <laughs> and, yep. But I thought it'd be a good coaching skill. He got to the sales part and he was doing the sales uh, training, but he did say a lot like in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And the way you use skills of influence can quickly become manipulation if you're doing it with the wrong intent. It's all about intent. So having said that, could we wrap that kind of message up for the young coaches out there who are out there trying to, you know, make a living in their coaching space and they need this next sale, but maybe they're willing to do something a little unethical to get it. I call it the look in the mirror test. If in 10 years, okay, if you take this path and you continue along the path that that action would lead you, in 10 years, are you still going to be able to look yourself in the mirror and like what you see, believe in what you see, and feel proud of who that person is? If there is any uncertainty around that, then that action is not the action to take. If you can't do it tomorrow, that is definitely not the action to take. So it's about, you know, 
those words authenticity and integrity if you don't have them then you're in the wrong industry for a start i truly believe because you're never actually going to be able to help anyone if you don't come to a coaching relationship with any sort of integrity you're not there for them so therefore the stuff that you might help them with is going to be surface and it's going to fade away very quickly and they'll go looking for that next hit from someone else. Um, and that's how you get, you know, conference junkies and, and, the, and the coaching junkies and people who just flip from one to the other because they continue looking for that hit. They're not actually getting the service they need. Um, that aside, as a coach, check with yourself that you can still look in the mirror and go, I am proud of who I am. I am proud of what I achieve and I am proud of how I deal with my customers who in 10 years from now are still going to be talking about the change I help them make. If those things aren't true, then you need to check in with your values and maybe do some value realignment. Well, perfect. And Becky, I couldn't think of a better place to wrap it up than that golden piece of advice for the young coaches out there. Uh, we're going to be sharing your links and socials, your book, Words of Beck, uh, Beck without a, with a K, not a C, <laughs> which uh, I've heard great things about on other podcasts and I'm... I'm Really excited to see what you're up to next. Do you have any speaking gigs coming up now that we're all out and about? Uh, not as yet. Uh, I've got a couple more podcasts. I'm kind of, I like the idea of podcasts. You know, I can hang out in my own area and yeah, have okay. to go out and drive a park and all those other life things that we kind of have learned to live without. I do miss live audiences. So yeah. I'll be starting to look at, at some of that stuff again um when the opportunities come up but in the meantime podcasts are a fantastic way of sharing and meeting new people and talking about new things and exploring deeper ideas and concepts than <clears throat> excuse me you know everyday conversation so yeah. uh but you'll you'll be hearing from me one way or another you know i'm my, my journey's not done and and you know my fame has not yet fully been written. oh i know it hasn't i know it hasn't when we, <laughs> when we dug into you a bit becky i was really really impressed by everything we saw so Blessed to have you on the show today. Really glad you're enjoying this podcast network. I hope we lived, lived up to it because I had a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Everyone listening, we'll see you in a couple of days time with another episode of Coaches to the Moon. But until then, thank you for watching or listening. Much love and peace out. Coaches to the Moon will be back next week. Until then, reach us on Facebook at To The Moon Digital Marketing.